Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, this one is absolutely perfect for you guys out there looking to start a business, maybe even grow a business, or, or even sell a business. I mean, it comes down to the acumen of some of the greats, and you can follow in their footsteps. Uh, Lewis Schiff wrote a book called Business Brilliant, Surprising Lessons from the Greatest Self-Made Business Icons. Thank you so much for being here, Lewis. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Let's start off with the genesis of this book. This one was in 2013. I think you have five or six other ones, but uh, what made you want to write this book that has 210 reviews on Amazon, guys? Check this out. So what's the uh, story behind it? Well, the idea was I had been right. I got to go back a little bit in order to get there, Mike. So the idea was um, I grew up in a, in a profoundly middle-class family. I grew up in New York City. Uh, my father worked for New York City government. My mom was a local real estate agent, just really solidly middle class. We never thought about money. I can't say I ever worried about money as a kid, but you know, we also didn't have much, right? Like a typical middle class family. Um, I went through New York City public schools while my friends and I were trying to figure out our way through life. And I started to find some traction as an entrepreneur relatively early. And I, I was kind of with this wonderful group of friends that I'm still great friends with today, but we just started to have different paths. And I was, kept wondering all throughout my 20s, why is it that some of us kind of have a different path, even though we all started from the same place? <clears throat> and this was became my obsession. And so by the time I got to the book, Business Brilliant, the question was, hey, if I were to tell you what actually works in order to create wealth, what would you do with that information? Because I was becoming clear to me now that wealth is accessible to all of us. I'm a huge believer in what you might call the American dream. It's you know it's called economic mobility, right? Anyone can accumulate wealth if they if they decide to prioritize it. Um, but most of us don't prioritize it. Here's the problem: when you survey most people, they say they want more money than they have. Obviously, that makes a mm -hmm. lot of sense. But when you say what are you doing about it, that's where the split takes place. The ones who are accumulating wealth are doing a set of things I wrote about in this book, seven different things. And the rest of us are doing something different that's not leading to wealth. So it's like an exercise in just the obvious, right? Like if you want to do something, if you want to accomplish a goal, why don't you do the things that lead to that goal? The, the kind of subtext to all of this is I, I kind of believe most people don't really want to create wealth. They, they want the money, but they don't want to do the things it takes to get the money. Exactly. And so that's fine because money is far from everything. It's not the end of the world. It's just be honest with yourself. Stop saying, I want more, I deserve more, I should have more, and then behaving in a way that doesn't get you more. So Business Brilliant, for all your listeners, is this is how it works. This is how wealth is created. And by the time I got to that stage of my life around 2013, I was investigating wealth creation from a lot of angles. And I was also you know, doing pretty well as an entrepreneur. But I was just like, look, I'm just going to tell you how it actually works. You can like it or not. You can like the fact that some of the ways it takes to create wealth don't make you the greatest human being on the planet. Just, you know, just accept it. This is how it works. And it was all data-based, survey-based. Or don't. Stop saying you want to create wealth and behaving in a way that doesn't lead to wealth. Right. And so I blame it on maybe society, maybe the school system, uh, our culture, that it doesn't educate people when it comes to financial literacy. And so individuals grow up and they buy li liabilities and then they think whenever they're buying liabilities, they're actually buying assets, right? They, they, or they, they think they're 
investing, but they're actually buying things that depreciate. Like if you buy a house or if you buy a car, there are certain aspects of it that they think, oh, this is an asset because I own it. Well, technically, if it doesn't pay you, it's really not an asset. And Rich Dad Poor Dad really exposed that to me, that assets yeah. are something that pay you consistently. And once that clicked, I said, oh, well, I learned everything the wrong way. This is the book that set me free. So I think that is what's happening more so than anything else. The financial literacy is dropping because school systems teaching people what uh, the wrong definitions of asset and liability. And then whenever it comes to the patterns of people usually spend money and then they maybe invest or save what's left over. Well, the wealthy, what I realize is they invest and then they spend what is left over or they invest right. into assets that assets produce income and then they spend what the income produces, right? So uh, what have you noticed from the average person? And then what did you notice amongst the greats that you analyzed? Right. Well, you're, you're funny enough, you're talking about my first book, which is called The Armchair Millionaire, which was laid out a five-step plan to create wealth uh, as an investor. And it, in fact, you nailed it. It's start by uh, putting money ahead for the future and then live on whatever's left. And that, that's, a, that's a huge game-changing approach. Um, the things it takes to create wealth, I'll tell you the three that are the most important. They're, they're completely free, what I'm about to tell you. Yeah. Anybody can access them. It's just all about character and personality. Number one is you have to do more of what you're good at and less of what you're bad at. And it seems pretty obvious. The problem is most of us get jobs with a job description. And the job description is you have to do these 20 things. Very rarely do we get to say, you know what, I'm good at these five things, but I'm not so good at these 15 things. Let me make my job these five things and I will excel. And that's what entrepreneurs do. They say, I'm going to design a company around what I'm good at. And that's the great gift of entrepreneurship. Whereas for most people, they take a job and it tells them what they do. And no one ever says, in fact, it's quite the opposite. You go in for your quarterly or your annual review and they say, Mike, you know, you're not so good at, um, at uh, you know, program design. We want you to work harder at that. No, it should be the opposite. Mike, you're not good at program design. Stop doing it. Do the <laughs> other right. things. Yeah. Right? And we go, this goes back to our kids. Johnny, you know, you got a C in English and an A in math. I'm going to get you a tutor in English. No, drop English, get the guy a tutor in math, lean into what he's good at. You know, like that's a, an orientation that we see in some parts of our world, like with college athletes or kid athletes, we, we encourage their athleticism. But, you know, in a lot of things when we're just going through our lives, we're encouraged to become, try to get good at the things you're bad at. No, do more of what you're good at, less of what you're bad at. So find a way to shape your life in that image. Obviously, entrepreneurship lends itself towards that. The second is, um, and this is the hardest one of all, is adversity is the, the fastest and best way to learn what you're bad at. Because if you go out in the world and say, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to try and be a really good, um, you know, auto mechanic, and, and you're really not good at these things, you keep failing at them. That's incredibly helpful insight to stop doing those things by because you fail at them. But we live in a culture which really discourages an honest discussion around failure. We're always being told or everyone's trying to make us feel good about what we who we are when entrepreneurs love to talk about their failures. I mean, they sit around the room and they talk about all the ways they did not deliver. I've got a friend, 40-year entrepreneur. He's got a business card. On the front, it says the hits. And it's the few businesses that he has that worked. And you flip it over and it says the misses. It's all the businesses that he failed at. And it's a much longer list. 
His business card literally promotes his failures over his successes. Any entrepreneur will tell you that there's much more to learn from their failures than there is from their successes. So, and I have all this research about how, you know, you you see your entrepreneur friends, if they start to accumulate any wealth, they move to a new community and you think, oh, there he goes, he's leaving the old neighborhood, he's, he's moving to that fancy community. That's not really what it's about. They're moving into communities where people discuss failure much more openly Wow. And don't stigmatize themselves over it, you know? And then the third is your network. And this, again, totally available to anyone who wants it, is have small but intimate networks of business contacts. So my research is you should have five people in your life that you're super connected to in your business life, that you have honesty, you have vulnerability. Hey, if you say, I want to earn $50,000 more next year, tell those five people and then say, how can how can I do that? And how can you help me do that? And they're all saying the same thing with you. And you work with those five people. And why is that number five important? Because everyone is so busy collecting sort of social media, you know, followings. I've got a thousand people and 10,000 people following me, but they don't have five intimate connections with anybody. And so I run a community called Birthing a Giants where we create those connections for people. So there you have it. Do more of what you're good at, less of what you're bad at. Use adversity to figure out what you're bad at. And find five people that you surround yourself with that will help you reach your goal and you'll have to help them reach their goal. Those are the three habits of the most successful people. And it's great what you just said there when it comes to failure. School penalizes you for failure. I'm rewarded for failure simply because I learned something new, I apply it, and I become more valuable to the marketplace. So as entrepreneurs, you actually are compensated for failing and failing fast. Because right. like you said, you are that character is built whenever you fail. And that character is really ultimately the uh, uh, the decider of your destiny, right? Who you become <laughs> after you fail is what makes you. So Business Brilliant is really a compendium of these ideas that uh, take, you know, character is a good word for it. But, I, but character is also an emotional word. I would also just say tactics. I mean, you can tactically decide to identify five people that you want to really connect with. You can have... 20 people in your life, and you could take all of them out to lunch and say, listen, I'm, I'm heading down this path. And I was wondering if you want to be part of a small group where we share intimate like things about our business lives, instead of hiding our salaries from each other, we tell each other our salaries, you know, and you can do that. But that's, you could call that a character thing. But I would just say tactically, go out and do it. Just do it. What's stopping you? Yeah, it's amazing. It's like you get what you focus on, right? And people who are afraid to talk about money, I mean, it, it goes against all logic that you're going to acquire more money if you don't focus on it and talk about it and think about it. And yes, yeah. you're right. Money is not the end all be all to everything. But if you have wealth and you have money, you have options and freedom. And that's what most people want. Right. You're 100% right, Mike. We, when we survey people, they always say the same thing. If If I had more money, I'd be able to help my family more. If I had more money, I'd be able to withstand the bumps that the road's going to throw at me. Very few people say, if I had more money, I'd buy the yacht and the jet. That's not most people's goal. It's really just to uh, sort of lubricate our lives. So the seven distinct principles, can you name a few for us? Because uh, well, That was the three of them I just Oh, did. those are the I'm top like, three? Gonna, okay, good deal. Yeah, those are the top three. I mean, the ones that I got into trouble for, meaning like I would go on the road and talk about it, there were two. One is um, uh, win-win is for losers is the name of the chapter. <laughs> And and it Uh-oh. just <laughs> I know nobody likes it. It's just the basic idea is um, just make sure you know what winning looks for you looks like for you, and don't worry about the other guy. 
it doesn't mean you want to hurt the other guy. It just means focus on what winning means for you and then don't worry about what happens to him or her. And that is an attitude of very, very successful people. Got it. And the second one is I, I explored, uh, I did it in a kind of a cheeky way to be provocative, but I basically explored what I call the asking gap, which is that people don't ask for what they want. And so if you and I start our careers out together and we have roughly the same skill set and we apply for the same job and the starting salary is $50,000 and I ask for a little bit more and I end up with 53,000 and you take the 50 and you look back at our lives 25 years later, if I kept asking and you didn't, there's going to be a pretty big divergence in our incomes Mm -hmm. because I kept asking for just a little bit more. And I kind of looked at this from the point of view of gender that women tend not to ask in the workplace as much as men do for a little bit more. And so I was making the point that there's a very famous concept of a gender pay gap where women are paid less for their work. And I was really making the point that if it's an asking gap, wow. if they asked for it, they would could, they could make up the difference. <clears throat> so when you analyze the Richard Branson's, uh, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett's, did you notice anything when it comes to maybe their routines, their habits, their schedules? Uh, and the reason why I bring that up is because when I think of brilliant individuals, I do think of Jeff Bezos. And he did say something that was very significant in one of his interviews. He doesn't manage his time. He manages his energy. And so he's able to analyze when is he the most productive as a person? Well, from 11 to one o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm going to make all of my very important decisions from 11 to one. So no meeting that is crucial to my business success happens outside of that time frame. And I thought to myself, that is a game changer for me. I'm going to implement that. Uh, Have you noticed anything like that amongst the greats? Yeah, that exact one. I'll give you kind of a different spin on it. Um, If you're negotiating with somebody, uh, they will play that game against you. They're going to lay a bunch of stuff at your doorstep for you to consider three, four, five o'clock. Most middle-aged people are not as productive at three, four, five o'clock. So you talk to some serious deal people, they'll say, yeah, I leave stuff at the doorstep of my of my counterpart at five o'clock when, they're, when their decision-making skills have gone down. So there's wow. a lot of game playing that goes Amazing. on. Amazing. Never even thought of that. If you're playing chess with somebody... You realize, okay, if that if they're if they're letting me know what their weakness is, I'm going to play that to my strengths. 100%. Oh, it's good. Yeah, um, I think in the example of Richard Branson, he was uh, he was he was struggles with crippling dyslexia, and so in his case, what that means is he never looks at the numbers. He could not read a spreadsheet of his life depended on it because his brain cannot process information like that, and that meant that he had to identify really good team members who are really good at those kinds of things. So really one of the great strengths of Richard Branson is he looks for his, he's developed the part of his personality where he's really good at judging the skills of others. So he doesn't have to be good at anything. The thing he's good at is building teams, uh, but he, he's not a numbers guy. He, he couldn't make a financial you know, assessment. Steve Jobs couldn't either. Um, and so these these folks play to their strengths, which is why, you know, do more of what you're good at, less of what you're bad at comes up so often. But of course, in almost any environment, someone having dyslexia would be called a weakness, but it actually created his strength, which is team building, mm. personality judgment. Um, so the things that the most successful people are good at are incredibly counterintuitive to what we are told. Now, it's not, I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy guy here, but it's it's not like a surprise that corporate America wants you to stay in your box, do your job, 
and like not complain because that, that definitely benefits the company. But uh, in truth, the real wealth creators do not stay in their box. They do. They complain a lot, meaning that they're constantly looking for something better. I have a friend who's incredibly successful, and he says entrepreneurs are the laziest people I know because all they ever want to do is find a simpler way to do the same thing that other people have to do where, where it takes much more effort. And all of entrepreneurship is just coming up with easier ways to do things. That's right. Yeah. And I think that the reason why people do not take the leap into <clears throat> entrepreneurship is because instinctually, there's an immense amount of fear uh, about being the outsider. And so if you go back to caveman days, if you were the outsider, mm -hmm. you were sure to die. So entrepreneurs have to fight that um, and go against the wind because the average person wants to stay in their box, not speak out, not be uh, highlighted as, uh, you know, as somebody who is um, lost in life. And so when you take that leap, that's whenever you can go on this personal development journey. Every yeah, well, thought that you think, you will start to analyze, did I, did I really believe that? Or is it just because of groupthink mentality? Oh, if I'm going to apply my skill sets to this marketplace, do I see myself doing this five, 10 years from now, giving me ultimate vision? And there's a great quote. I believe it's Confucius. I might be wrong about this. But vision is the ability to see what is invisible to others. And I think that is another piece of a great entrepreneur. I see something up here that nobody else sees, making me the rebel, the outsider, causing me to get hit over and over, causing more pain. But once I break through that, I'm a different person on the other side. Right, well, you said something at the beginning of this. You said, um, I might get killed as an entrepreneur. And the answer is you, you probably will get killed as an entrepreneur. <laughs> right. It's just, you just gotta pick yourself up and do it again. I think people believe entrepreneurs don't feel as acutely as everyone else. In other words, if they fail, somehow it doesn't bother them as much. It bothers them just as much as anyone else. It's just that they pick themselves up a little faster than most people. Most people experience failure, and this is all in Business Brilliant. They experience failure as, I shouldn't have tried to begin with. Entrepreneurs experience failure, and they say, what would I do differently next time? Just think about that as a parent, if you, if any listeners have kids, like, what do you want your kids to do? Try, fail, and then say, I shouldn't have tried, or try, fail, and say, let me try a different way. Because the second one is the secret to success of, in any endeavor, whether it's money or otherwise. The first one is the life of, of essentially being sort of taught, learned helplessness. You know, don't try. If I try, I'm going to be an outcast or I'm going to stand out. I'll give you a perfect example of this. And this hopefully like hits your listeners over the head. People say entrepreneurship seems risky. That's why I have a job. What entrepreneurs say is you don't have, you have one client. If that client drops you, you have zero clients. That's right. I have my own one company with a hundred. Yeah. I have a hundred clients. If I lose a client tomorrow, I have 99 more clients to work with. Like they look at people with jobs and they say, I could not sleep at night if I had one client. But almost everyone has decided that that one client scenario, we call it a job, is somehow less risky. It's not. Mm. Yeah, the first five years are full of pain and confusion. But I think that's the test that all men, have, all men and women have to go through. Because afterwards, you will have a tribe. You will know yourself. And self-awareness is an absolute superpower. And I think that is the byproduct of entrepreneurship. And I say it over and over. Entrepreneurship is a personal development journey disguised as a business journey. And uh, I think couldn't it's the greatest definition. And so yeah, self-awareness. Yeah. I just wouldn't, I would just say it's not, it's not a byproduct. It actually is the primary function of entrepreneurship. <laughs> right.
And if you end up with a few bucks, that's good too. But it and but you know it, you learn about yourself. There is no not learning about yourself as an entrepreneur. So that that's another fork in the road, I would say, to people about entrepreneurship or about wealth creation. Is the thing about wealth creation is there's not enough money. That's why it has value. If you gave everybody a million dollars, then mil- having a million dollars would have zero value. Right. So the whole point is some people have it, others don't. And the people who have it want to keep it. And the other ones who don't have it want to try and get it. And so if you're not interested in that game, then you're not going to learn about yourself. Now, you can do it in other ways, of course. You can do it in professional excellence by being the best doctor. There's a million ways to do it. But if you're not willing to face you know, who you are and what you're good at, what you're bad at, then you're probably never going to accumulate the thing that you treasure most. You you have to take that on to get the thing you love. Mm-hmm. I think the phrase "think like an entrepreneur" has changed me, and I say this over and over to myself, but also to my team. Think like an entrepreneur because when you do that, you just become a problem solver. We are paid based off of being great problem solvers, right? And then it's not that you run from problems, you actually run towards them because if you could solve the problem, you will be compensated. And it is the Jim Rohn approach. I bet you're a big Jim Rohn fan. Serve the many, right? Lead with the seed, not your need, right? What could I offer you to make your life better? And therefore, my life becomes better. So you start to look for problems because where there's problems, there's usually chaos. Where there's chaos, there's opportunity. And uh, I look at this as such a blessing. So yeah. I think it shifts your whole mindset of don't run from problems, run towards them. And therefore you can be quote unquote, the hero of the story. Yeah, that is your, you couldn't be more uh, dead on. Entrepreneurs are heroes. They have that quality. You know, if you're in a public place and you hear bullets run, you know, ring out, you're probably going to run in the opposite direction of the sound of those bullets. But there's a small group of people who run towards that sound. They're, they're law enforcement people. They're trained, but they're also, they have that hero mentality. That's, that's where they feel them their lives coming to be you know, purposeful. Entrepreneurs see risk and they move towards it. Everyone else is moving away from it. Just like any normal person would move away from risk or a fire or bullets. But there's this group of people who say, I got to see what's going on over there. I got to see if there's an opportunity for me in that. Yeah, it all ties into the vision point you made earlier that you know they can see things before other people. Mm-hmm. And it also ties into their ability to pick themselves up after failure. You know, there's a handful of qualities. I mean, this is what Business Brilliant is about. I never want to be glib about how it's definitely not easy, you know, and, and it's not available to everybody. Some people's lives simply don't allow themselves to do things like this. But most of us, if you're, if you're, yeah, you know, I'm a college dropout. I, I was going to say, if you're college educated, you know, you can get, you can do these kinds of things, but I'm even, I'm not that. So most people have, um, we are blessed to live in a country where, you know, Pretty much, if you have an idea, you can move towards it, and there's not too many things stopping you. You just have to convince a lot of people that your idea is right, and that's hard. So if you could paint the picture of your journey, was there a time you almost threw in the towel to go back to that steady job to get the corporate uh, cubicle and you know, n- nice and safe? Was, was there a moment you almost gave up and went back to the old life, if you will? No. <laughs> no. And- Never thought about it for one second, but- I do. I'm I'm 54 at the time of this recording, and I actually can imagine not working as hard. I, I'm starting to think I need to pull my life together in a way where I'm not busting my butt all the time. I have done that for. I've been working since I'm 14, so I guess I'm in my 40th year of work, and I just feel like every day I just leave it all on the field, and I and I end almost every day pretty much mentally wiped out. 
And I, I'm starting to think that I don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, there is that phrase that, um, you know, if there's struggle and there's, there's pain, there's also purpose, right? Like it seems like you, you, you rob a man from happiness. If you take away this, this journey of, of, of struggle. And I think happiness to me is going uphill and wanting to keep going. So, uh, that is part of the entrepreneurial journey. And I bet you experienced that where the, 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 you are judged based off of the dragons in front of you. And maybe the more dragons you slay, maybe the more purpose and happiness that comes along with it. So do you think that will go away eventually once you stop putting dragons in front of you for you to knock out? Uh, I think because I'm in my 40th year of doing this, I think that you want to contribute more by virtue of your wisdom you've collected from taking all those arrows than by the hard work. So there comes a point where you know, even today, if someone, if something needs to be done, very often I'll say, screw it, I'll do it. And it could be one of these weekend projects or, you know, late into the night projects. I don't think I, I, I'm sharing this to your listeners. I do think there comes a point where that quality of an entrepreneur is actually not their best quality. They, they should be doing more of what they're good at, less of what they're bad at. And also not always taking the bait and say, Hey, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Or I gotta, I'll do it my way because I know how to do it the right way. I just think I'm trying to evolve over time to be, and and people do this all the time. They build organizations where they trust the people to do great work, and uh, you know it's a process. One of the greatest pieces of pieces of advice that I received in the past couple of years was from Jordan Peterson. I'm sure I'm sure you're a big fan of his. Yeah. Is that right? I, uh, I I think he's really bright guy, really bright guy. And he said something in one of his talks is create the schedule that you want and, uh, and, and let everything else uh, fall around it. Right. And I thought to myself, man, the moment you do that, you really can set your week up for absolute success. You know, make your Monday mornings a little bit easier. So you don't dread the, the craziness of Monday, right. make your ending of Friday a little bit easier. So you kind of maybe go out on the dirt bike or in the woods or go for a run mm -hmm. on a Friday. So you have something to look forward to every day of every, or every moment of every day. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs build their life around their business, but the ones that I look up to um, build their business around the life. So yeah. creating the schedule that you want hit me and it really changed how I set up these podcasts, set up my team meetings. And I think that's a great nugget for our listeners. Do you agree with all that? I totally agree with that. I, I'm also confessing to you and your listeners that I struggle with that, but you know, I, I agree with it. I just, I love the game so much that the idea of making having work-life balance just doesn't seem that appealing to me, but I'm starting to reconsider that. <laughs> well, you have another book I want to touch on, The uh, the Middle-Class Millionaire, The Rise of the New Rich and How They Are Changing America. What's the bottom line of that, uh, that book? What, what do you mean by new rich and the changing of America? Well, it was about people who have accumulated uh, between $1 million and $10 million of net worth. That's about that accounts for about ten percent of the U.S. population, <clears throat> and so you know we we make I'll tell you the America I'll I'll just worry about America for a moment. America worries. Um, America makes fun of the rich, and it's a silly, pointless exercise. So we make fun of the Jeff Bezoses of the world and all these things. The truth is, there's a lot of you know middle class millionaires, people who's value system emerges from the middle class, but they've, they've accumulated a few bucks and they have, let's say, $10 million of net worth. You're just an interesting group of people because obviously there's more of them than there are of Jeff Bezos's. And so 
what we looked at in that book is how that group of people who, who really are in the middle class. I mean, I'll give you an example. These are the people who don't move out of the old neighborhood when they create wealth, but they do buy a, a teardown and build like a McMansion on it. So they're staying in the neighborhoods. They're staying in their middle class value systems, but they're living like a very kind of money influenced life. And so if you looked at all the things you like, that book, by the way, is from 2005. And in that book, and I'm very proud of this, I wrote about a little car company that was run by a guy named Martin Eberhardt. And he had a vision for how the electric vehicle would transform the world. That company was called Tesla. Elon bought that company and did amazing things with it that Martin never could have done. But the roadmap for Tesla comes way all the way back to the beginning of this uh, century. And he had a whole understanding that the only way you were going to get the electric vehicle to be widely adopted is to build an affordable version that looks great. And by the way, that's not the Model 3, although the Model 3 is a really good manifestation of that. It's the Model 2. The Model 2 isn't out yet. It's going to be a $35,000 sort of Honda Civic type car. Wow. Martin Eberhardt's vision for how the middle class would propel a world-changing technology like electric vehicles is literally 20 years old. And it's happening even now as we sit here. And so that group of people, that $1 to $10 million people with middle class values, but with money to spend, they determine a lot of how we live. They have a mm. huge role in trends and in sort of like what gets unlocked in corporate America in terms of consumer products. Wow. Yeah. And I, I just watched an interview with an individual who's one of the first 300 uh, employees at Tesla. And he was he was given a stock option, I guess, what, 40,000 shares at 97 or 90 cents uh, strike price. And uh, he didn't believe in it. <laughs> and he actually went through a divorce and sold it. But if he kept it, it would it would have been worth like 15, 16 million dollars. So not many people believed in these people's visions right out of the gate because no. it was so far off in the future. Right. It was far off. But I think that there is a uh, an investing thesis, which is if the middle class millionaire likes something, you should bet on it because the middle class millionaire is the gatekeeper to the rest of the middle class. Wow. So watch what the middle class, watch what the affluent middle class adopt and then expect the rest of the country to adopt it down the road. It's great advice. Uh, the book that set me free is sitting behind me, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I mean, yep. this falls in perfect alignment with what we talked about today, but it really did wake me up and uh, it showed me what an asset was, right? And so I was able to kind of really changed my life based off of the information in this book. And I was kind of angry because I was like in school, I was a senior at Duquesne University. I'm thinking to myself, why did I go to school? I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to have total control of my life. And so I owe everything to this book. And that's why I keep it behind me. Is there a book like that that stands out in your life that really sets you free or puts you on this path? Oh boy. Well, yeah, it's it's not as popular as Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it's not really for every person, but it's a wonderful book written by someone who's become a friend of mine named Doug Tatum, and the book is called No Man's Land. Hmm. And the reason why it's an important book, it's really for entrepreneurs, not for you know people starting out. It's for people with going concerns. But my work today from Birthing a Giants, which is the school I run for entrepreneurs, is for people who have pretty scaled up businesses. So you can't even get into my school unless you have $5 million in revenue. But the typical would be 25 million in revenue. And when I say revenue, you know, you're leaving all the startups behind. The startups don't have revenue. All those people raising their first million dollars from angels, they're all what they call pre-revenue. 
And my world is entirely people who have going concerns with all the complexity, all the, they got vendors and they've got angry you know, clients and they've got employees and they've got banks you know, knocking at their door. And that group of people, people who have businesses, let's say from 5 million and up, those individuals who own those companies, they are the epicenter of my economic mobility thesis. They all come from the middle class. They all started with nothing. They built businesses that did not require outside investment. They started a services company, a, a, a plumbing company, an HVAC company, a roofing company. Now they're doing software development, but that's the same thing as roofing. It's, it's technical services, right? And they have built these significant businesses and they come into my school because they want to go from where they are to you know 10 times bigger. Everybody wants to be 10 times bigger. Mm -hmm. So they might have a business that has 10 million in revenue. They might have a take-home pay of about a million dollars a year. They all want to be bigger. And what I've learned from studying that group of people, which is really, really, really covered well in no man's land, is the work you have to do to scale a business where it really can employ hundreds or thousands of people and have a positive impact on that population on the town that that business is headquartered in, on the planet that that business resides in, is very valuable work. But you have to follow a process. And I'm sorry to say this because the, the sort of money people, the venture capital, the private equity, the banks, the investment bankers, Wall Street, like most of them drive me nuts, but they are really damn smart. And so, you know, what it took me many years, and I grew up in New York City, my first job was as a Wall Street messenger at the age of 14. I worked on trading floors, basically carrying pieces of paper around. And I, I came to hate those people because they were <laughs> they added so little value and they made so much money. But what I you, you might have thought I would have joined them, but I just found that so detestable. <laughs> but what I have learned is that the things they do and the things that they know how to do are incredibly valuable to building a business. I happen to think they're overcompensated for it. But nowadays, what I'm looking at are people who have built a business, they've gotten to the $5 million or the $25 million mark, and what do they have to do to get to the billion-dollar mark? That's my world now. I work with companies to get them there. And it has a lot to do with the kinds of things that the capital markets are really, really good at. It's fascinating work. So a lot of us are starting businesses that are kind of under the guise of you know the, the promise of entrepreneurship, which... Things like freedom and work-life balance, portability, and I get all that, and I and I spend many years there. But now it's like, how do you build a business that really provides rock-solid jobs for people, that pays its taxes, that has a that sponsors the little league teams? Like, how do you build a business that has a positive economic impact on the world? And No Man's Land taught me that. No Man's Land, never heard of it, man. That's a great recommendation. One quote I heard recently is a man does not stop at money, fame, or success, or women, or you know, popularity or anything. He stops only where he finds peace. Have you noticed a lot of entrepreneurs get to a certain point where they maybe they're breaking 25 million? They're totally free. They don't have to do too much. They're building everything they want. They're working with whom they want. So what's the reason to keep going? It have they not found peace? Or is there anything that you've noticed amongst the people who are just constantly building and creating? Are they at peace sure. or are they still searching for it? Uh, mostly not at peace. Entrepreneurs are rarely at peace. Uh, peace is a bit of an illusion. I, I think that if you reach it, I'm, I'm very happy for you. But I think most of us, like any number you pick, 25 million, any number you pick is not the point. Obviously, Jeff Bezos, I'm 
I don't know Jeff Bezos, but I'm convinced he did not set out to be one of the wealthiest people in the world. He set out to build something. When he got to a certain size, he wanted to be twice as big. Then he wanted to be twice as big. Then he wanted to be twice as big. The idea that he had a number in mind is silly. None of these guys have numbers in mind. They just want to be as big as they can be. And for some of them, that means 25 million. For some, it means a billion and so on. But they don't go into the world saying, like, once I get to 25 million, I'm, I'm, I'm done. They're not wired that way. So it's basically, a, and this is a Jordan Peterson quote, you have a moral obligation to pursue what you find meaningful. And really what they're doing is just pursuing what is meaningful to them, which is growth yeah. and expansion and, and the ability to serve more and more at a higher level, period. Yeah. And and the fact that they might achieve some of those sort of, uh, well, forget about other people's goals. If someone said to you, gee, if you had 25 million, wouldn't everything be great? Like they never think that way. But but whatever their goals are, they might hit it. But no, I would say most of them struggle to achieve a peacefulness, even if they hit it, because they're builders. Uh, the, you, it's like this. <clears throat> imagine, <clears throat> imagine you're a wartime general. Well, what do you do when you're successful in crushing the opponent? Now you're a wartime general in a time of peace. What do you do with yourself? You oh, need look a at war. Patton's life. He needs. He needs that war. He needs to go back into the fight. That's what he's built for, right? The hardcore entrepreneurs want a war. They're looking for wars. They do not need peace. But if they're very successful, they achieve peace. And that's when they pivot and go look for a new war. Oh, that's great. So No Man's Land, look at that book, guys. I've never heard of it. But he has many. Business Brilliant. Um, and, and this has, like I said, 210 reviews on Amazon. It's def definitely resonating with the audience. A couple other books out there for him to, uh, for you guys to check out. Um, so the website that I want to promote here, birthingofgiants.com. So if you're out there and you're breaking 5 million and you're looking to take it to the next level, you can, they can go to this website and get in contact with you, check out your social media, yeah. everything. Is that right? Yep. And I would also recommend they go to howiditvideos.com, howiditvideos. And what they can do there is they can get a free copy of my newest book, which is called The First Habit. Uh, which is the one thing that on, the most successful entrepreneurs do over and over again. And they can download it for free. They can get the audio version. It's all free at howiditvideos.com. And the other books I want to reference here, The Middle Class Millionaire, The Armchair Millionaire, The Middle yep. Class Millionaire, and yep, The a, a to Z Money Book. All great titles. Anything with the word million in it, I'm drawn <laughs> to. So great job on selecting those titles. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> Guys, birthingofgiants.com. And uh, the one that we talked about today, Business Brilliant, Surprising Lessons from the Greatest Self-Made Business Icons. Lewis Schiff, it's been an honor to talk with you. Everything you're talking about is perfect for our audience. So please come back anytime. Anytime a new book comes out, please reach out to us. Thanks, Mike. And I, again, I love your characterization of what, what's important to you as well. No, it's entrepreneurship. I mean, it, you want to be free, think like an entrepreneur. You get it. I hope most of my audience gets it because once you start to think like an entrepreneur, you can start to see how the media lies to you, how the system's against you, and it gives you this power. The great Carl Jung philosophy, those who look outside dream, those who look inside awake, and you will awake more so through entrepreneurship than anything else. Agreed. Guys, remember, a million-dollar book will lead to a million-dollar life right on.